Well, let's turn our Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're continuing the little Advent or Christmas series we began last Sunday. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back, or you can look on the screen to my right. Matthew chapter 1. We are spending four Sundays journeying through Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And as I mentioned last week, one of our goals this ministry year we we announced is to strengthen faith, to strengthen our our faith toward God. And I'm praying this Christmas series contributes to that end. And today, a a particular expression of faith I'm hoping is is strengthened. You might call an awe-filled faith. Faith, a faith that is filled with awe and wonder. See, when we come to Christmas, there is, like, like we've been in here in San Diego, there is a, a red flag warning, a red flag danger. A, a danger, when it comes to Christmas, of familiarity. Of being so familiar with these Christmas realities. Tim Keller has an illustration about this danger and how this happens. He says, imagine, imagine you're visiting a friend's house, a friend's house that is situated next to some railroad tracks, and you're in conversation with your friend when suddenly a freight train goes by just a few few feet from where you're sitting, and you jump up in alarm and you go, what's that noise? And your friend says, what noise? And you say, I I thought something was coming through the wall, was going to run me over. And your friend says, oh, 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 that, that, that's just the train. I guess I've gotten so used to it that I don't hear it anymore. I don't notice it anymore. And that's kind of how Christmas can be for us, isn't it? I'm so used to it. I barely notice anymore. I mean, we notice the lights, we notice the shopping, we notice the presents, we notice all the activity, but do we, do we stop, friends? Do we notice the truths we're recognizing, the truths we're celebrating? They're so familiar. We know the story. And so we can become overly familiar, no longer startled by what we're celebrating. Friends, no longer In awe. You see, what we're celebrating really is a freight train going by. Inches from us. It demands our attention. It means to shake us out of our stupor and leave us with a faith filled with awe and wonder and joy and worship. And so that we might feel that awe. Let's follow the story as Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, unfolds it for us here in three parts. Let's call the first part of the story the problematic pregnancy. First part, let's give it a title. The problematic pregnancy, beginning in verse 18. We read again, we read this earlier. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... 
she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So you might notice here, Matthew doesn't give us the decree of Caesar Augustus calling for a census in the empire. He doesn't mention the journey to Bethlehem, no room being available in the inn, the birth in the manger. Matthew gives us Joseph's perspective. And we don't hear a lot about Joseph. Joseph doesn't get a whole lot of airtime at Christmas. But, but put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. He faced a huge dilemma. Did you see the dilemma? Verse 18 says they are betrothed. So they are, they are pledged to be married, but not yet married. But, but being betrothed was a big deal. You were committed, all right? You were locked in. It was a binding pledge such that sexual relations would be considered adultery. And yet we read in verse 18 that Mary was found to be pregnant. It seems the implication is she hadn't told anybody yet. It would appear. The implication seems to be her pregnancy was discovered by others in the normal way. She's getting larger. But we're not told by whom. Perhaps, I imagine, Joseph may have discovered. Perhaps, he said, with a lack of appropriate tact, dear, every week your waistline gets bigger. Come clean. Are you pregnant? And Mary says, uh, well, sit down, Joseph. I have been wanting to talk with you. You're right, I am pregnant, but it's not what you're thinking. An angel visited me. He said the Holy Spirit would come upon me and I'd be pregnant. And I said, okay. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. It may have been Joseph who discovered this, but, but perhaps even more likely it may have been Mary's parents. For Mary may have been about 13 years old at the time. Imagine as her parents... You observe week after week and you realize what becomes undeniable. She's pregnant. And you think of the shame she has brought on your family. And you have to communicate to Joseph. Joseph, I don't know how to tell you this, but Mary has been unfaithful to you. She is pregnant. Joseph, tell us what you want to do. Joseph, tell us how you want to handle this. Joseph, tell us how you want to proceed because adultery in this day could be considered a capital offense. It wasn't used often, but the death penalty could be employed in this situation. That's the problem. What would Joseph do in this dilemma? Think about it. What would you do? Well, Joseph decides to deal with the problem in the best way he knows how. Verse 19 and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, an upright man, and unwilling to put her to shame publicly, resolved to divorce her quietly. Because his character is upright, he says, I'm not able to marry her, but I won't publicly humiliate her either. I will privately, quietly end this betrothal and that's when God intervened. Let's see, secondly, what we could call the divine intervention. The divine intervention. 
as Joseph decides to, quote, divorce her quietly, God sends a heavenly messenger to Joseph in a dream. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Imagine now, put yourself again in Joseph's shoes, and you realize Mary is telling the truth. Perhaps equally shocking. The angel says that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I think it's interesting, we talk about Jesus' birth, and we refer to it rightly as the virgin birth of Christ, but of course, the birth itself was rather normal, I imagine. What's, what's miraculous is his conception. Though many today seek to deny this, you cannot rule out conception here by the work of the Spirit just because it's miraculous. I cannot explain how it happened, neither can you. But that doesn't mean it didn't. The first verse of the Bible says this is entirely possible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friends, if that's true, and it is, God created his universe. He can intervene in that universe in any way he chooses. And the claim of Christmas is God miraculously intervened here such that what is conceived in her, the angel says, is from the Holy Spirit. And, and he says, there's no need for an ultrasound. It's going to be a boy. Furthermore, he says, no need to break out the baby name books. I'm going to give you the name. His name is going to be Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves, using the Old Testament name for God. So the angel is saying, God saves. That's his name. Thank you very much. God saves. And we might say, what's the big deal about the name? Who cares about a name? My, my legal name is Maurice. I was named after a great-uncle that died before I was born. My parents at birth gave me a nickname somewhat after an actor named Tab Hunter, if you recall him. So my name, the full significance of my name is a relative I never met and an actor I've, I'm unfamiliar with. The significance of my name is really to give fodder to my friends to make fun of me. But in this culture that we're reading about here, a name was significant. A name would represent the hopes of a parent of that child. It's, it's what they hoped the child would be or become or be like in some way. And even more so, here the child's name describes the child's mission. Did you see that? Call him Jesus. God saves. Why? For he will save, rescue his people from their sins. That's very significant. 
His people would be, in summary, all who believe. All who believe in Him. But we should ask then, why do His people need to be saved or rescued from their sins? Why is that? I mean, sure, we've all made mistakes, but deep down we're good people, right? Okay, maybe a few minor indiscretions we might cop to. But compared with other people, I'm pretty good. I have a good heart. But the Bible says otherwise, doesn't it? Think about it like this. Today, we, we love to give online reviews for everything, don't we? I don't know why, but recently my phone has started, every time I use Google Maps and I leave somewhere, a thing pops up and it says, do you want to review what the place you just left? Do you want to give a review for the 7-Eleven where you just bought a Slurpee for your kids? No, I don't want to review the 7-Eleven. I don't care about the 7-Eleven. I like to use Yelp, and you get the review of the service and the review of the food. We love giving these online reviews to evaluate everything. What we don't realize is that we ourselves are constantly being reviewed. God is not an overbearing critic, don't get me wrong. But as creator and ruler of the universe, he is observing our every word every thought, every motive of our hearts, and ultimately he evaluates all of them by the only standard that matters, himself, and his own perfections. And I think then we would acknowledge we've fallen short of that standard. And that's a very big problem. It's a big problem for all of us, isn't it? In his, in his holiness, in His absolute godness, God cannot overlook these failures but must respond to them and He must respond to them in the only way He can with His holy wrath. Listen, if God failed to punish our sin, God would fail to be just. God would fail to be holy. God would fail to be God. This is what a good God does. This is what we want a good God to do, isn't it? A good God must punish evil. What we forget is a good God must punish our evil. And He does so with His holy, justified wrath. Now, I realize you might be here sitting there going, Tab, I enjoyed the Christmas music. I kind of liked the video, but I didn't come here about this old-fashioned concept of wrath, of God's anger or punishment. And I, I, I understand that. But, but think of it like this. This week I found out that one of my uncles has lung cancer. Now, lifelong non-smoker, so it was a surprise but he was having an x-ray on his vocal cords, and it just happened to be, by God's grace, catch the upper part of his lung, and they saw a spot on his lung. And they said, let's biopsy that. Sure enough, it came back cancerous, but they've told him it's operable, and 
Lord willing, he should be fine. But imagine the doctor said, I see a spot on your lung. It could be cancer, but don't worry about it. Those ideas of cancer are so old-fashioned. Let's ignore it. What would you say? You'd say, pull his medical license, wouldn't you? The guy's crazy. Why? Because you want an honest diagnosis so that you can appreciate and employ the appropriate remedy. That's what this is like. That's what the angel's announcing. If you see an honest diagnosis here that you and I need to be saved or rescued from our sins, friend, you'll begin to appreciate and perhaps taste some awe in the remedy God has lovingly, lovingly, graciously provided. You see, the child born at Christmas, he grew up. Don't leave him in the manger. He grew up, lived a perfect life, obeying in our place, and then gave his life on a Roman cross. He hung there not as a cosmic accident, but as a cosmic rescue, enduring the holy judgment of God against our sins for all who believe. He was put into a tomb. He rose on the third day from the grave. He triumphed over the death, over death and the grave, and has ascended back to heaven. That's why the angel says, call him Jesus for he's got that mission. He's going to save his people from their sins. It's a freight train going by here, friends. There's a poem I was made aware of recently called The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. The poem goes like this. My gift for the child. For the child. No wife, no kids, no home. No money sense. Unemployable. Friends? Yes, but the wrong sort. The work shy. The wimps. Petty infringers of the law. Persons with notifiable diseases. Poll tax collectors, tarts, the bottom rung. His end? The baby's end? I think we'll make it public, prolonged, painful. Right, said the baby. Right, said the baby. That was roughly what we had in mind. That's God's plan. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's a freight train of salvation, of rescue, that we want to respond to with faith that is filled with awe and, and wonder. So you might ask, okay, where does the awe come from? How do I get more of that? I think it starts with seeing your need for this rescue. Not once, but reminding yourself, even right now. I think it starts with seeing your need and seeing what he's done. Believing that God is that holy, friend. Believing that our sins against infinite holiness are that serious. Believing that God must punish our sin, that that is right 
and good. And believing that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life in your place, and gave his life out of love, sacrificing for your sins, receiving the just judgment for your sins, then rose from the grave, ascending back to heaven, proving emphatically his sacrifice was more than sufficient for all of your sins. You believe in your need and what he has done. And all begins to grow. But then you must see one other thing. You must also see who this child really is. So third part. Third part. Let's call it the prophetic interpretation. The prophetic interpretation. You see, Matthew, he adds an interpretation of these events. Possible that it's still the angels speaking, but it seems like it's Matthew giving an interpretation, applying an interpretation that was actually given about 700 years before the baby was born through the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 22 now. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the conclusion of the matter, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he wisely did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Now catch what, Isaiah, uh, what, what Matthew said there. Matthew's saying that Isaiah prophesied a, a second name for Jesus, as it were. Emmanuel, providing the translation, he says, it means God with us. Now, a little background on that. 700 years earlier, God had sent Isaiah the prophet to King Ahaz, king of Judah, because Ahaz was in a bind. He had two enemies allied against him. So Isaiah says, it's going to be fine, King Ahaz, if you trust the Lord. And God, through Isaiah, offers the king a sign. He says, ask for a sign, any sign. King Ahaz foolishly says, no thanks, I got this. Because his trust was in man and not in God. So God offers him a sign, the sign we read about in verse 23. Behold, a virgin, a, a young woman of, of marriageable age shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in context, for Ahaz, it's really a sign of judgment. This young, unmarried woman would give birth at some point in the near future and that child would, would not grow up before judgment would come. But they hint, these words, don't they? They hint at a far greater significance and a more ultimate fulfillment. You just have to look at the, the larger context, in fact, of the book of Isaiah. And two chapters later, and you find... Something bigger is going on here, like in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we read the following familiar Christmas words. For to us a child is born, to us a son 
is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name, the name of this child, shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Notice, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Matthew was on the right track, wasn't he? There's a line to draw between this sign in Isaiah's day and that baby born 700 years later. Matthew was right to connect Emmanuel, God with us, with Christmas and the manger. In other words, the prophetic interpretation of Christmas is this, friends. The child, the child is none other than God himself in the flesh. Did you catch that? It's not God near to us. It's not God close by to us. It's God with us as a baby in the flesh. Does it still fill you with awe and, and wonder? I think this is really where the, the red flag danger of familiarity hits home for me, maybe for you. Let's just think about this for a moment. Just think it through with me. The Bible teaches that God has always existed, always existed, as one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, God the Son has always existed. Never a time when there wasn't God the Son. And yet, the eternal, pre-existing God the Son took on a human nature as this fetus. such that without altering his deity or diminishing his perfection, God the Son added a human nature to his divine nature to be one person, God the Son, now with two natures, the God-man. That should blow a fuse for us. That's a freight train. And then when you ask why, why in the world then you remember what the angel said. He will save his people from their sins. So there are really, they're really two names here, aren't there, in a way? Two names to connect, two names that relate to each other very closely. Two names you need to keep together. You've got the name the angel gives. Jesus, God saves and then you've got the name through the prophet Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Put those together and I think you get the takeaway. Jesus is God with us that God might save us. Hear the train going by? Jesus is God with us in the flesh that God might save us. Us. And I trust you just, you, you feel my pain here. There's no illustration for that. I can't tell you how that happened. I can't explain that. I don't know how. The best attempt, perhaps, was made by the early church in the latter part of the fourth century when they put together what's called the Nicene Creed. I just want to read to you part Here's part of the Nicene Creed. We believe, it says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, 
that's not it. That's okay. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Yeah, that's, that's not it. It's okay. You don't have to show this slide. I'll just read it. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. So catch that. Preexistent, always existing, begotten from the Father before all ages. How? Well, uh, we're not sure. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That's the best we can do. Begotten, however, not made, not created. Of the same essence of the Father, as the Father. So one God, and through Him all things were made. And then it says this, For us and for our salvation He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. That's the best we can do. We just stand back in awe, don't we, and wonder and say, God with us, that God might save us. And we believe. I think, I think the connection between the two names was captured nicely by a guy who, for a time, led the council that finalized that creed, a guy named Gregory Nazianzus. I may not have pronounced that correctly. But he said, rather famously, catch this, he said, what Christ did not assume, he cannot heal. What Christ did not take on, he cannot heal, save, transform. He's saying Christ had to take on our humanity that he might save humans. That's what he's saying. He had to be truly human that he might truly save humans. We needed someone who was human to take our place in judgment. We need a human to be a substitute for humans. But humans have a problem. We have a sin problem. So we need someone who's divine who could truly be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Someone who wasn't part of our problem who would come from outside into our problem and save us from our problem. So God with us has done that for us. It's, it's a freight train rolling Great mystery. Can't explain it with this great purpose. God with us, that God might save us. Now, I think another really good attempt at this was made by the church father, Augustine, in the 5th century. So now we can show that poem. Catch what Augustine wrote. This, this is worth kind of just walking through slowly. This will make your morning, okay? I promise. Full refund if this doesn't make your moment, morning. Man's maker was made man. I mean, you could stop right there and ponder that. Man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread, the bread of life, might hunger in his humanity. The fountain, the fountain of living waters, he might thirst. The light, sleep, the way be tired on his journey. Why? Why, Augustine? He tells us, 
He connects the dots that the truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. Do you feel the awe rising in your heart again? Isn't isn't the response to this like the response we're to have when we go to a place like the Grand Canyon? How many have been to the Grand Canyon? Most of us. You go to the Grand Canyon and you step to the edge. You do not say, whoop-de-doo. Big hole in the ground, just as I expected. What do you say? You don't say, your, your mouth is gaping, your knees feel a bit weak, your heart beats a little faster because you are in awe, and hopefully, out of that awe, you worship the God who has done this. That's the response of faith we want to have at Christmas, isn't it? A faith filled with wonder and awe leading to worship. Friends, leading to worship at the God who has done this. It's the response. It's the response modeled for us in heaven itself. As they respond to the God-man and his finished work. I was just reading this with my kids this week in Revelation chapter 5 where the Apostle John he sees a vision and there's a scroll which represents the purposes of God in the earth. And an angel says, no one's worthy to open the scroll. No one's worthy to unpack the purposes of God in the earth. And John, the apostle, in his vision, he begins to weep. Oh, man, no one's worthy. No one can do it. No one can pull it off. And the heavenly being says to John, weep no more, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's the baby born at Bethlehem, city of David. The lion, this divine lion is able. And so John turns, he says, and I, I turn to look to see this lion. And what does he see? I see a lamb standing as though it had been Slain. I think that's a nice picture of our passage. Divine lion come to be sacrificial lamb. God with us that he might save his people from their sins. And so, and so heaven, heaven breaks out with a loud ho-hum. Right? That's a, we already knew this, Tab. We're so used to it. We don't hear the train anymore. No, they sing a new song. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sing, worthy to the God-man. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. 
And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Isn't that a beautiful response to what we're celebrating at Christmas? It's theology leading to doxology or worship. It's truth fueling praise. It's faith filled with awe and wonder and joy. Oh, may God give us ears to hear the train. And we're going to take now the Lord's Supper to that end. Because Jesus, friends, is God with us that he might save us. We want to take this supper together that the Holy Spirit might grant us communion with the risen Christ and would strengthen our faith, feed our souls, even give us fresh awe and wonder.